Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. And today on the podcast, we're featuring a lecture given by Valerie Duval Pujol as part of our Biblical Studies Lecture Series in 2019, entitled, Does Translating Mean Betraying? A very important question for all who read and study the Bible. Kristen, who is Dr. Duval Pujol and what will we hear today? Dr. Valerie Duval Pujol is the chief editor of the revision of the Protestant French Bible of the French Bible Society and serves as vice president of the Protestant Federation of France. She is a New Testament scholar, having taught at several institutions in France, and is a very experienced Bible translator as well. She is a delightful person, which I think comes across in her lecture. In the second part of her lecture on Bible translation, she discusses the different types of translations, the importance of the Septuagint and Bible translation, and some preconceptions of translators that have influenced their work in our reading. I thought Dr. Duval Pujol's lecture was extremely helpful and informative as we think about our Bible translations, and I'm so glad that we are sharing this lecture with you today. Doug? Let's go now to Hodges Chapel and listen in on this lecture, Does Translating Mean Betraying? Bonjour. It's a good sign you are more than yesterday, so I prefer that than the reverse, you know? So it's <laughs> very good. Yesterday, we saw the challenges of translating the Bible today and also the importance of the peritext. You know, everything that is added by translators and printers and publishers, and we had seen these manuscripts of the fourth century. It's what an ancient Bible manuscript looked like. So you can see, spot the differences with your modern Bibles, everything that is not there and that is in your Bible today. So we spoke about titles, chapters, and footnotes, and everything. Today, I want to develop, and you have, all of you, you have the, uh, the uh, handouts, yes. Um, the different types of translations, then the importance of the Septuagint for understanding the New Testament, and finally, some preconceptions of translators that have influenced their work, and therefore, influences all reading. So first, different types of translations. I, I would like, we know each other now, so I may give you an advice. I strongly advise you, when you study a biblical text, to read different translations, but not just different. Look at one belonging to each large family of translations. So let me explain. Any Bible reader faces two different kinds of translations, and you can see that on your handout. You have the formal, or literal translations, and you can read the list on your paper. These translations focus on the source language, Greek or Hebrew, and it's a formal equality, equivalence. The English text is modeled on the original language, and where possible, the Hebrew or Greek word is always translating using the same English word. So the risk. The good thing is, you know, uh, accuracy, being faithful, but the risk is that is not understood by English or American readers. And there is also a tendency to keep the text ambiguous or difficult if the original is ambiguous or difficult. The second group, the second family, translations with dynamic equivalence, the goal is to give the meaning of the text in the receptive language, so English for you. These translations try to transfer the original meaning of the Hebrew or Greek to communicate the information more meaningfully into English. They try to create the same effect on the reader than the Hebrew or Greek did when it was first written. And you will read in your handouts a list of Bible with moderate or extensive use of dynamic equivalence. So let us take together a few examples to compare these two groups. Jeremiah 17, I, the Lord, search the heart, I try the kidneys. 
So is the Lord a kidney specialist? What does that mean? You know, I try the kidney. This is literal. A dynamic translation would say, I test the mind, or I test human hearts, or I examine secret motives, because the kidney in biblical symbolism is our conscience. So in Psalm 148, the Lord has lifted up the horn of his people. Yes. And in a congregation, everybody would say, amen. <laughs> yes. What does this mean, the horn of his people? He has made his people strong. He increases his strength or pride. So what do you prefer, to read the horn or the pride? Well, it's not to compete. It's, not, it's, it's better to use both in different contexts. Let us take one which is even worse. 1 Peter 1.13. Having girded up the loins of your mind, be sober. A girdle was used in the ancient times by men because they were wearing some kind of garment. And when they wanted to get ready to do something, they would use a girdle not to be bothered by their long shirt that reached to the knees or ankles. So the loins are the kidneys. We come back to the kidneys, the mind. And it is a picture alluding to Exodus 12, where those eating the first Passover were prepared for travel. Did you get all of that when you heard about the girdle? You know? So a dynamic translation would tell, get your minds ready for work. So you, you don't talk about the girdle anymore or the first Passover, but you have understood what it means. So you shouldn't have to choose. You should use both but it means in the, in the two different groups. So a piece of advice, start with a dynamic translation to understand what it says, and then a formal translation to see the pictures use, used in Hebrew or in Greek. And there is, this is no recent debate. In the Septuagint already, you have literal translators and more dynamic translators. And even though also in the revisions that the Septuagint underwent, Aquila was ad verba, literal, and Symmachus was ad sensum, dynamic. So listen to this saying. Uh, this is not just true for the translation, but um, I find it is very true for many things. And you have it at the bottom of number three, page three. What do you betray by remaining faithful? maybe literally faithful? And to what do you remain faithful when you betray? This is a question, I won't get the answer. This is your homework. Number four, we're gonna now talk about the, uh, um, uh, the influence, the Septuaginta and its influence on the New Testament. Of course, I could also talk about the great importance of the Septuaginta for the Hebrew Bible, but then I would have to stay two more days. Um, Today, let us focus on the importance of the, you know, the Septuagint for the New Testament studies. As the saying sums up, Christianity is born with a book in its cradle. Most of the time, when writers of the New Testament quote the scripture, let's say 80% of the times, they quote the Septuagint. Like Eusebius has explained it, Septuagint is a preparatio evangelica, a preparation to the Gospels. One example of these quotations, in Hebrew 11:21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the top of his staff or stick. It's a quotation, as you see in your uh, margins of the Bible, of Genesis 47. So you go to Genesis 47, and you expect to find the same text. The problem is, when you read Genesis 47, what do you find? Then Jacob bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So what was it, his bed or his stick? And the text in Genesis is with the Hebrew word hamita, bed. And the letter to the Hebrews quoted the Septuagint. And the underlying Hebrew text of the Septuagint is the same consonants, but not the same vowels, mate, the stick and not Mita the bed. So it does explain the difference. Let us see some examples how the Septuagint helps to understand the vocabulary and theology of the New Testament. Let us be reminded that the vocabulary of the authors of the New Testament is the same vocabulary as the Septuagint. Where did they draw their vocabulary? Well, from the Septuagint. They use the same words, Christos, Ecclesia, Diakonos, Doxa, all these words. Um, these words have changed meaning from classical Greek 
And it's through the Septuagint that now they take this new vocabulary. At the time of the drafting of the New Testament, most of New Testament authors read the Septuagint as their scriptures. So they take from there the uh, vocabulary, the face expressions, the theology they need to express the reality of this new face in Jesus the Messiah. And the readers of these books, when they meet an expression that is the same in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, it makes a connection between these texts. It builds bridges, intertextuality, we would say. And thanks to the same language, it makes intertextuality easier. Sometimes in your English translations, you may identify this intertextuality because it's possible to translate the same way. But most of the time, as we shall see, you lose this, in your English translation, you lose this intertextuality. Let us take an easy one, John 1.1, 1, 1. an easy intertextuality. The starting words, what are the first words of the Gospel of John? Oh, you, you sleep, some of you. What are <laughs> the first words? Yes, in the beginning, and we have already read these words. Where? Well, the first words of Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. So that's an easy intertextuality with the exact same words in Greek in John and in Greek in the Septuaginta of Genesis. The author of John's Gospel wanted to show the continuity of revelation. Christianity has not been invented ex nihilo, from scratch. The Gospel of John makes a connection between the coming of Jesus and Genesis. Hence, his gospel is presented as scriptures, like the book of Genesis. So you see, this is a choice of vocabulary that tells a lot, deep theology. It shows the unity between testaments and the new creation in Jesus, only with two words in Greek. John 1.14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What is here translated made his dwelling, made his home or lived among us, in Greek the verbs keno, to put up a tent, a tabernacle. It is an allusion to the tabernacle, the meeting tent that was used by God in the desert to meet his people. The author of the Gospel of John tries to express with words from the well-known tradition that God in Jesus is present in this world like God was present in this tabernacle, this tent. And it is the same during transfiguration when Peter said, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters or dwellings. It is the same Greek word as tabernacle again. So Peter doesn't want to go camping, you know, put up tents, no. He recognizes in the words of his tradition that God is there, that the divine presence is here in what is happening. Another example, when Paul shares for the third time his testimony in Acts 26, there is a surprising repetition, now get up and stand up on your feet. In Greek, ala anastheti, kaisteti, you can hear the repetition. Your translations try to avoid this awkward repetition. You know, they say, well, bad Greek, you know. But, and some even suppress the repetition. See, uh, for example, the New Living Translation. Now get to your feet. But in fact, it is intertextuality. It's on purpose. Because the second verb is the exact same verb used in the Septuagint to describe the calling of the great prophet Ezekiel. Luke, using on purpose these words, compares Paul's vocation to the one of the great heroes of the Old Testament, making his vocation a prophetical one, Ezekiel, Paul. It also shows that the Christ is talking to Paul like God did to the prophets. Take the, exa the example of the angel speaking to Mary, mother of Jesus, in Luke 1. The power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Overshadow you. It could sound mysterious or maybe frightening, but it is the exact same word as for when the cloud had settled upon the tent of the meeting, the tabernacle. So Luke finds in the Septuagint words, um, word in the Septuagint, he finds words and concepts to describe the miracle of God, his deeds. Take Luke 9.31, the transfiguration again. Elijah and Moses are talking with Jesus of his departure. In Greek, he's Exodus. You already know this name from, from a book named Exodus. 
Of course, it can mean departure in the sense of death, but the Greek word used here also describes the departure from Egypt when God delivered his people and the name of the book in the Bible that tells this story. Luke here identifies what Jesus was about to do as a liberation, like the one by Moses. He identifies Jesus and Moses. You see, Matthew had done that, this identification, Jesus and Moses, by reporting the murder of young children by Herod at Jesus' birth. So this is the way Matthew had established a, for the reader a comparison between Moses and Jesus. And Luke does it by the use of a word coming from the Septuagint. See also how Jesus is called in the New Testament, Curios, Lord which is exactly you know, the way you call God in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. So we will stop here for the Septuagint. I could talk for hours, it's my passion, but I hope to, you have now the desire to learn more about the Septuagint. And you have this, this um, uh, Septuagint scholar, Paul de la Garde, and he said to his students, sell everything you have and buy a Greek Bible. So that's just my advice to you. <laughs> Last but not least, to finish together, we're going to talk about the preconceptions of the translators and the way it influenced their work. Throughout many centuries, it was considered that the only real difficulties in translating the Bible were coming from the understanding of the original languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, and from the adaptation to the receptive language. What has now been understood and proved is that preconceptions of the translators were also influencing their work. They have made choices. We, did, we said that yesterday, translating is always making choices. They have made choices influenced by their gender, their culture, their religion, or their race. And it means that translating is interpreting. Let us take several of these preconceptions and starting with doctrinal preconceptions. Do we read the Bible to confirm what we already believe or do we read and translate it through our doctrinal biases? That's a question. In order to illustrate how doctrine influences Bible translation, I have chosen two examples from the Magnificat in Luke 1. Luke 1.28. Every Bible version since the great Jerome put in the angel's mouth a greeting to Mary with these words, Mary, greetings, full of grace. Mary, full of grace. It is still in Catholic modern translations. It could be understood as Mary having great qualities, full of grace, not God's work to her. So reformation happened, and in reaction to the excessive role given to Mary, in the Catholic Church, Protestant versions decided to translate here, greetings to you who is received in grace. You see the difference? Received in grace. This expression wanted to highlight an idea that is not present in that specific text, that Mary is a sinner and needs grace. So who has here will hear, yeah? In Greek, there is a passive form here, greetings to you who is favored, a favored one. And notice that Luther had refused the translation full of grace, not because of the ambiguity for Mary, but because, he said, that it made him think too much to a bowel full of beer. <laughs> That's for Luther. Let us also notice that the beginning of the verse is translated differently by Protestants and Catholics. Protestants translate rejoice, and Catholics translate Hail, in connection with the prayer they say to Mary. Let us take Luke 1.45 and listen to the two differences. Uh, where is Kristen? You would read the two differences? Thank you. Blessed, yeah, 1.45. Ha, huh, any difference? Read it again. <laughs> read it again. <laughs> no, I mean them, them. <laughs> I know it's early in the morning. In the first beatitude in, of the gospel, it is applied to Mary. But Catholics and Protestants do not understand it in the same way. And the Greek gives us the two meanings. This is interesting. Because the Greek word hoti can either mean because or that. 
So Luther, Erasmus, and many Protestant translations have here because. You are blessed, Mary, because, emphasizing the reason of Mary's blessedness. Catholics' translations prefer blessed he, is she who has believed that there would be accomplishment, given value to the act of faith of Mary. A last Catholic example, in Ephesians 5.32 about marriage. In your Protestant Bibles, you read, this mystery is profound. And I am saying this, it refers to Christ and the church. In a Catholic translation, you may find here, this sacrament is profound. Because sacrament, instead of mystery, coming from the Latin word sacramentum, to say mystery. And also, it happens that marriage is a sacrament for the Catholics. So that's quite useful, you know, to have such a Bible verse. But <laughs> I will stop looking at the Catholic speck of sawdust and now watch the plank in our own translations. Protestant translations of the Bible, which also have their doctrinal bias. Let us be honest. I will quote two examples from the Bible translated by the great reformer John Calvin, a French, um, the founding theologian of many churches around the world. So he personally did not translate the Bible, but his cousin did, Olivetan. It's good when you are the cousin of the great reformator to have your Bible published. So that's his Bible, Olivetan. Um, and Calvin influenced this Bible translation a lot. Let us take Luke 22, 15. Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples, and Jesus told them, I have been very eager to eat this Passover with you because my suffering begins. So this Passover meal. So in the Bible of Calvin, Oliveton, you can read, I have been very eager to eat this Passover lamb with you before my suffering begins. He adds lamb to be specific for his reader that Jesus had not eaten a Passover that would have been his own body, as the Catholics used to say. So you add a word. See, the same influence on Tyndale, you know that 80% of King James is Tyndale, so it's important to know Tyndale's version as well. I have inwardly designed to eat this Easter lamb with you. So you can spot the same influence here, doctrinal influence. Another example in 1 Timothy 2.2, Paul encourages Christians to pray for their authorities. I exhort, therefore, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all men, for kings, and all those in authority. But in Oliveton, Calvin's Bible, there is not the word all. It says simply, pray for those in authority, not all of them. There has been a time where some people in authority, people who were persecuting the Protestants, were not considered worthy of prayers. Well, it's good that the biblical text resists, and finally, you know, the word all was added. <laughs> Let us take Romans 3.28. Um, can, we, can we show this one? This is a picture of Luther's Bible. It's in German, of Deutsch, natürlich. And you know that he translated into German. So he, it's Romans 3.28. Here is how Luther has translated, and since then, so have most German translation. Or we hold that one is justified by faith only, only, apart from works of the law. In Greek, there is no only, and most modern translations have by faith, without the only. Yet, as many specialists would agree, the context makes this understanding not impossible. The contrast of faith and work allows this understanding, but it is true that, it, that this translation is overemphasized, if you want. It makes me think of the anniversary this year of the signature 20 years ago of the common declaration on the doctrine of justification between Catholics and Lutherans now also signed by Methodists, Anglicans, and Presbyterians. And in this document, Catholics and Lutherans together say that justification, our topic here, justification, is by grace alone, by faith alone. Allow me a French example. In the most famous French Protestant translation, Louis II, published in 1910, and yes, we still use it, the Protestants of that time refused to have priests in their Bible. 
you know you have many priests in the Old Testament and then in the New. They didn't want any priests because it sounded too Catholic. So they substituted the word, and instead of priest, you find sacrificer, someone who does sacrifices, an old-fashioned and difficult word, but at least not a priest. <laughs> we could speak of the different translation of the verb sozo or dikaioyo, save or justified, but you will read that in your handouts. Let us talk about the naming of God. There are many names given to God in the scriptures. Which names do you know to name God in the scriptures? Okay, how do you call him? <laughs> when you pray, <laughs> what do you know? You know Elohim, you know, there are many, many names to name God in Hebrew or in Greek. So I will focus on, on two. What does the name of God Shaddai, El Shaddai or Shaddai mean? In a song I learned as a child, and in most modern Bible version, it is translated God Almighty, the Almighty. And the Septuagint was the first to translate like that with Pantocrator, the one who can do everything. And yet, the meaning of this name of God remains controversial. There are many, many debates. There are more than dozens of explanations but not one that convinces everybody to explain and translate this name. To name a few, for some specialists, it is a name used mostly at the times of the patriarchs, meaning God of the steps, because they were nomads. Or a part of Jewish tradition, understand it as, as the God who tells the word, this is enough, the God that sets limits. Some still understand Almighty, and you will find translation with Almighty, and others, like sovereign God, the one who holds everything. But yet, we do not know for sure what this name means. So your translators, it's often our conception of God that influences our choice of translating here. Let us take the most common name for God in the Old Testament, the Tetragram. You, how did you learn by heart Psalm 23? The who is my shepherd? The Lord, everybody, the Lord? Yeah, so you, you, <laughs> the Lord, that's the most common translation. Here, this is the name of God, which is the most frequent name for God, the tetragram, the four letters. And what do we know about this name? You know that Jews decided not to give vowels to that name, and out of respect for God, they decided to replace. Each time they see that name, they say the Lord, which is another uh, name, Adonai, in the Bible. So why do we have this name, the Lord? Because of the Septuagint. And New Testament writers have also adopted this translation of the Septuagint, Lord. Catholics' Bible, for a long time, didn't have Lord. They had Yahweh or Jehovah, uh, which is a possible way of vocalizing this name, of saying this name. But since 2001, Catholics have been required by the Vatican to translate every document um, in every document, this name was Lord in their Bible, their songs, or their prayers. Um, but, you know, we really have no idea how it was pronounced. And the wisdom here is probably to follow, not the Catholics, but the Jewish tradition and the Septuagint and New Testament writers that all translate it Lord. And I'm thinking of this new English tradition to use Yahweh in some of the worship songs. They are being... Uh, uh, drafted here, and we have them in Europe, you know, a few years after. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, and I spotted this, you know, trend uh, in this song, singing Yahweh everywhere. And, you know, it means we decide how we name God. This is what we do when we do that. We decide how we name God, because we don't know how to, which vowels we should put under that name. So are we going to decide we, how we think we shall name God? Let us talk about sexist preconceptions of the translators. Um, fellow male students, you may stay, of course. <laughs> For centuries, Bible translators have been main, men. Things of, think, sorry, of Jerome, Luther, Tyndale. How far has it influenced their understanding and translations of the Bible, the fact that they were, that, that, that they were men? Biblical texts have always conveyed a message of great equality be between genders, yet the translations have often minimized this impression because of the sexist worldview of the translators, or sometimes their culture. 
What has not helped us in many of the writings of Paul, for example, have been the fact that it has been translated into a sexist way. Yet Paul was no misogynist at all. Paul had great female co-workers. The Apostle Junior, we mentioned the other day, and not Junias, or Phoebe, Prisca, Priscilla, many other women. So I would like to explore with you some of key examples of these sexist translations, but there are many more. Let us take the text with Anthropos. The Greek language is lucky to have at least two words, one word to describe a male, aner, and one to describe a human being, woman or man, anthropos, as in anthropology. In the New Testament, the Greek readers know precisely if only men are mentioned in their Bible text or if the word used also includes women. Yet most modern translations tend to translate anthropos as man, and therefore the reader in English cannot know if only the man male is intended or if the woman is also included or not. It wouldn't matter if it were only when you tell a story, but it does matter when it, apl when it applies to text talking about the place of the woman in the church. Let us take two striking examples amongst many. To Timothy 3.17, Paul has explained in the previous verse that scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And then he adds, would you read, do you have it? Yes. So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scripture is there to help the man of God to be equipped to serve the Lord. It makes us think as reader, there is a special category. They are normal people and then the men of God. Yet the Greek uses the very general term anthropos. It is everybody, man or woman, that God wants to equip for his good work. Some versions try to be more faithful to Greek here. God uses it to prepare and equip his people or everyone to do every good work. Let us hear 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul is delivering his spiritual legacy to his spiritual son, Timothy. And Paul advises him. So Paul commands Timothy to entrust the message to man who will then teach it to others, seemingly also to men. When you read this version, this translation, you may have the impression that teaching is only devoted to men. Yet the Greek using anthropos clearly includes here men and women who are reliable and who then will teach others. Think of Priscilla or Prisca teaching Apollos, Apollo. We shall translate faithful people or reliable people. Is it about using a more inclusive language? It's not about calling God she or calling God parent instead of father. This is not what it is about. It's only about being more faithful to Greek and Hebrew when Greek and Hebrew also mention the woman so that the reader may know, the reader that doesn't know Greek and Hebrew as you do, that he may know what is included or not. I'm thinking of the King James Version. In this passage, Jesus called a little child unto him and said, him in the midst of them. Well, the Greek here is, is only paideon, which means in Greek we don't know if it's a little boy or a little girl. And it's not the main focus of the passage, you know, it's just, it's a child. But if you, if you, if you translate with him, you only, uh, the reader will understand that a child boy was there. I think here the example comes from Paul. may surprise you, but there is a, a very interesting example, translation, when Paul is translating himself the Bible. Um, he's showing us an example of more inclusiveness than we would have dared, maybe. Let's take 2 Samuel 7, 14. We read, you will be his father and he will be my son. Paul quotes and translates this passage. It's not from the Septuagint. This is his own translation. 2 Corinthians 6, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, say the Lord Almighty. So either he's really, he sucks in Hebrew, and he didn't get it. <laughs> Could be, it's Paul. Or he had a point. He had a point. His addition of daughter doesn't, does not come from the Septuagint. It comes from himself. He quotes and rewrites the quotation so that it could be applied to this new situation of the church he is writing to, including men and women. This is why we can also say brothers and sisters in the epistles in modern translations, because the letters are indeed addressed to both men and women in the first churches.
Let us take other examples. Genesis 2:18. God speaks to the first man about the first woman. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Most modern translations speak here of the woman as a helper for the man. And it's a passage that we read at most marriages. So it's quite important to know what is in it. What does that mean? How do you understand that word in English, a helper? Does it mean she will prepare the meal whilst he having a career? What does that mean? She will be a helper. And unfortunately, this very poor and vague translation, helper, that does not correspond to the richness of the Hebrew, is responsible for many misunderstandings about the role of the woman, understood to be a servant, a slave, or her husband, who would dominate over her, a helper. So in Hebrew, you would read that uh, she would be an ezer, kenegdo. The first word, ezer, you know it in Eben Ezer, for example. Ezer describes a collaboration when the strength of someone is not enough. It is most of the time translated support, rescue, and even salvation. In fact, in most of the passages where the word Ezer is used, God is Ezer to us. And if you were to translate that God is your help, you would understand that it means he rescues us. Not just he gives you a hand, you see. He saves you. And, what, and this is what God expects the woman to do, to rescue the man. But wait a minute. From, from what did he need it to be rescued? From the danger of the risk of being alone by himself, only with someone exactly like him. This is the danger, being with people only like us. And he needs someone different from him. He needs otherness. This is what is included here in this word. He needs otherness, and she also as well. But we need otherness. The second word qualifies this support. What kind of uh, support, what kind of salvation, of rescue? It would be kenegdo, a rare expression. Literally means as facing him, corresponding to him. There are two meanings for that expression. The verb nagad, to communicate, to tell, and also the idea of face to face. Here, the woman shall rescue the man. She will support him, and vice versa. By each of them talking to each other, they shall be an alter ego for each other. And the way to help each other to become themselves will be by talking, by this face to face. And it could also include in Hebrew, front to front which means some resistance, which means conflicts as well. And we are before the fall. It's very interesting. Conflict is already there before the fall. Not a conflict that is a war. When you reach war, it means you, know, you have badly solved your conflict. But conflict is already there before the fall, questioning each other, confronting desires and fears, front to front. Therefore, we could translate here this key passage. I will rescue, I will comfort him by making for him an alter ego that would be appropriate for him, an ally that would be his counterpart. This is so much richer and so much exciting that only a helper, if you want, for him. The other example I want to take with you is in Romans 61, Phoebe, you know, there are many women mentioned, we mentioned some in the preaching, but Phoebe uh, is another woman mentioned here. Depending what versions you read, you will get a completely different view on Phoebe. What was she doing for that church in St. Creus? Is she a servant of the church preparing coffee and tea? Is she, a it's good to prepare coffee and tea, but you know, wh wh what are we talking about here? <laughs> Is she a deacon, a deaconess, a minister? So in Greek, you have the word diakonos. And why should the church help her? Because she has helped many? Or, you know, cleaning the house? Or what has she been doing? Or she, she gives aid to many? She's been a benefactor in Greek prostatis. So we take these two words together, and we see first that you cannot call her diakonos. It would be anachronistic. It only comes in church history much later. Um, and we see that diakonos is most often used in the New Testament to describe someone preaching the gospel, serving as a spokesperson or God's emissary, which could mean for Phoebe two things. Uh, she could have been spreading the gospel in these parts of, um, of the cities of Corinthia, or also she could be the bearer of that letter written by Paul to the Romans. Many specialists of Romans thinks Phoebe, and that's why she's mentioned first, will be the one bearing the letter. 
But you know, when you were bearing a letter, you were not just being the postman or postwoman. You were reading it out, and you would explain and answer the questions. I mean, we're talking here about women's. This is the hardest in a book and the most important one, and, and, and every great theologian has made a commentary about Romans. It's really you know, the uh, essential, and, and he has chosen Phoebe to do that. And the other word, prostatis, uh, very interestingly here, is a feminine word. It designs normally elsewhere governors, uh, people who, um, uh, who lead, who are leader, rulers, who presides, even presides communion, for example, who exercise leadership and authority. So you can see how helper is so weak in our language here to tell what Phoebe was doing. Phoebe here. You have this 9th century Arabic version uh, of Paul's letter to Romans. And listen to how they understood it. Phoebe, one in authority over many and over myself as well. Paul saying that a woman has authority over him. Oh, these Arabic people, you know, 9th century. Interesting. However, you know, it's because of the sexist translations of this passage here that we do not get really the importance of the role of Phoebe. She was here presented, um, she held probably a position of considerable responsibility, prominence, and authority. And Paul thanks God for that, and he, he dares saying that to others. Well, you may tell, okay, Paul has female co-workers, Juna, Phoebe, Prisca, and so on. But what do we do with the passages about the women in his epistle? What do you do with that? Well, I would need more time, um, two more days, to explain all this famous text of Paul on women and to show you that in these cases, too, translations have been sexist. There are other ways to understand them than the way it has been interpreted in a patriarchal way for centuries. I only want to take one example showing this biased translation. 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. This is what we normally read in most modern translations. Well, in fact, there is another way of understanding this imperative in Greek used here. May the woman get instruction, and they should do so in quietness and full submission. Is it what you have already heard about this passage? No. Have we already realized that Paul here wants women to be instructed to get education? Have you noticed there is no indication as to who they should be fully submitted to? Well, we have a hint with the expression in quietness. This word, also used in verse 12, means quietness, not a passive silence, but in the sense of paying attention, as you all do now, thank you, paying attention to what is said, describing the attitude of someone listening to learn, the attitude of a disciple paying attention to what his master said, like Mary at Jesus' feet. And it is what it is about here. And often, this is not what you hear when you hear a modern translation of this passage. Let us leave sexism and talk about racism, some racist preconceptions. Throughout the centuries, good white Christians going to church every Sunday have justified unjustifiable crimes, slavery, segregations. And they did it, we all know that, with their Bibles in their hands, finding justification in this text. Thanks God this time is over. But it's true that um, few translators of the Bible are coming from ethnic minorities. And at least I'm talking from my French context. You will tell me about your context. But for the moment, there are very few of this minority in the Bible translations team. So let us take one example. Song of Songs 1.5. I am black, but beautiful. The beloved woman introduced herself. These are her first very words. And she apologizes about the color of her skin. If you read this, what I have just read to you, it's uh, many people, many uh, black people here find it very offending, as, as if she was apologizing about the color of her skin. And she invites the women of Jerusalem not to pay attention to it. And unfortunately, this verse, translated as such, has been used by some to pretend that black is synonymous with ugliness in scriptures. Let us remind ourselves of two elements here. First, she's not black, she's more sun-tanned, skinned, and it's not her original color. See, she mentioned that just after in the following verses. Her skin has been burned by the sun, like it is explained in verse 6. Maybe a translation would be, I'm very dark. And most important, the conjunction between the two propositions 
can in Hebrew be understood not in opposition, but as a simple coordination. I'm dark and I am beautiful, and beautiful too. Unfortunately, there have been centuries in which black has been associated in Christian theology with negative things. Ancient Christianity has often used the symbolism of the colors. Some church fathers associated white with purity, holiness, and black to the blackness of the sin. Let us read what the great translator, Jerome, in the fourth century, say in his commentary of the psalm. You may read that for us. He describes here our conversion. This is a way, you know, he, he would describe our conversion. The great Jerome. And he, that's only one example of this long tradition in Christianity of taking this symbolism of the colors wrongly. Let us remind ourselves with this. Yes, there are in the Bible some passages associating white to purity, but it says white as snow. It never compares it to skin, which is more nude and not white. And the contrary of white as symbol of purity isn't black in the Bible, but red scarlet. Look Isaiah 1.18, for example. Um, Though your sins are like scarlet, they should be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they should be like wool. So there is a huge difference. A word about anti-Semitism. Some Christians have supported, you know that, anti-Semitic views claiming that Jesus was killed by Jews. This accusation was repeated during the Shoah, the mass murder of the Jews during World War II. And this accusation was fueled by the translations of the Gospel of John. In this Gospel, the word eudaioi in Greek means different things. Sometimes the inhabitants of Judea, sometimes the Jews in a religious meaning, and sometimes the Jewish leaders, the political authorities of that time. In some Bible translation, they now use different translation for the same Greek, from the same Greek word, depending on the context. And it truly helps to differentiate between the Jews as a whole, or as people, or the leaders of that time. For instance, John 7, 13, but no one would say anything publicly, publicly about him for fear of the Jews. How can Jews be afraid of Jews? Well, another translation here makes a difference between the terms and suggests, for they were afraid of getting in trouble with the Jewish leaders. Certainly, the finest translation, this finest translation, could help reducing anti-Semitism, and we need that today as well. Last point, Christian life and ethics. Some translations have been disturbed by some biblical texts and have not quite translated the Hebrew or Greek. Fortunately, the biblical text resists our preview, and we finish by hearing the liberating truth of scriptures. It takes time sometimes. You need a few revisions, but uh, it happens. Let us take two examples. Matthew 5:48. Would you like to read that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be perfect. Well, the Greek tense here, a future, it allows here two understandings so that your translator has to make a choice. The imperative, and most translations choose this command, you must be perfect, but it could also mean a future, you shall be perfect as your father is perfect. What difference does that make? Be perfect or you shall be perfect? Is it a command or is it a promise? Well, it's both in Greek. We need to hear both the encouragement and the order, you know, and the command. Another text, interesting, is in Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry. I repeat or you got it. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Yes, the Greek gives here a command to be angry. Yet in Christian circles, it has often been taught that anger is not really Christians. In fact, among the four main feelings, joy, anger, sadness, and fear, only joy was considered as Christians unacceptable. Yet biblical texts allow these four feelings, but sometimes your translators struggle with that. Here Paul is quoting a psalm and asks that when we get angry, we do not sin. Anger is not the sin. Anger is sometimes a good thing, like when Jesus was in the temple court or when facing stubborn hearts. 
But listen to the Jerusalem Bible, for example. Even if you are angry, do not sin. Or the good news, if you become angry, do you hear the difference? There is no imperative anymore. There is only a supposition. Okay, if, in case, that's a huge difference. So a word of conclusion to let us some time for the questions. So first, keep on learning Greek and Hebrew, my friends. It's an excellent way to yourself check what the translations say, you know. So keep on learning that. But what shall we conclude? We have seen the different biases that have influenced translators. Should we stone them? No. <laughs> or blame them? No. <laughs> Pray for them? Support Bible translation societies? Uh, but I think these examples prove one thing. It's a, a theorem from the mathematician Gödel. He said that periphery influences the center. Periphery influences the center. It means translators are the children of their times and are not perfect. There is no such thing as perfect objectivity when you translate. Hence, the necessity to compare, to use different translations, to get closer to the original meaning. Yet, I suggest we do not remember the idea that translation means betraying, but rather, another picture, that translating means building a bridge, a bridge with us readers. And the goal of everything we do, my friends, translating, preaching, studying, is to build bridges between this world and God. We would like the world to know that this book, the Bible, is good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. After all, Christianity is not the religion of a book, as some say. The Bible is not the fourth person of Trinity, but this is the fascinating place where a bridge is built so that I may encounter the Christ, my Savior. So I would like to finish with this final quotation from the Jewish philosopher Levinas. In every word, there is a bird with folded wings that awaits the breath of the reader. Readers, the Bible awaits you and your breast. Thank you. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.